When we were in grade school, we all learned that Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. But he did make a significant contribution to the Industrial Revolution. It wasn't the automobile that he contributed. It was the manner in which the automobile was made or manufactured. What he kind of gave to the world was the idea of mass production. He found a, a more efficient, a faster, a, a, um, a better way to make cars. That was his contribution. And he found two things from this contribution. The first one was that he could make cars less expensive than his competitors without losing any quality. He could, he could, find, he could make a car less expensive and more affordable. So it was no longer just a luxury. A horseless carriage wasn't just a luxury for, for a few um, wealthy folks. It was, it was an opportunity for all of the people, especially all through the middle class, to be able to afford an automobile. The second thing that he found, of course, was enormous profits. He was able to make a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. In fact, his family continued. He, he, he held on to enough of the company so that it would always be a family company. Um, just this last year, in 2011, in the fourth quarter, the Ford Motor Company made $12.4 billion. And in all of 2011, profits Profits of $20.2 billion. And so his, uh, his invention, his mass production idea, it seemed to be a pretty good one and hung around, uh, well, it still is today, doing all right. What you may not know is that the Ford Motor Company was actually the third company, the third automobile uh, company that Henry Ford was a part of or, or that he began. The first one was called the Detroit, excuse me, the Detroit Automobile Company or the Detroit Auto Company. And uh, he began working with it and found that the cars were overpriced, the quality was low, it, just, it only lasted three years and it was gone. And then he went to work with another guy, uh, William H. Murphy, and, and together the two of them uh, made a car company called uh, the Ford, Mo the Ford uh, Automobile Company or something like that, Ford Motor, not Ford Motor, Ford, Mo Ford Automobile. And, and they made this company, even though it had Henry's name on, the, uh, on the, the company, they were partners, they were stockholders. But Murphy thought, that, you know, they needed a... They needed a um, a consultant to come in and work with him, and, and Ford couldn't get along with the consultant, so he quit. And they changed the name of that company to the Cadillac Automobile Company, and it hung around for a while as well. And so Ford started his third company, the Ford Motor Company, and after his two failed attempts, he finally struck gold, and the rest, as they say, is history. You know, it's, um, it's something that he found, though, in that, in that process is this, that hard work and adversity and perseverance they often pay off. If you keep at it, if you keep working hard, you might find at the end of the day something worthwhile. You might be successful. It's kind of like that um, the person who was seeking after truth and went to the sage and says to the sage, he says, um, how did you become so wise? The sage said two words. Well, what pray tell are those two words? He said, the sage says, right choices. <laughs> well, the person says, well, how did you make right choices? One word, the sage says. Okay, what's that one word? Growth. Well, the seeker is perplexed by this point. He says, okay, well, how did you grow? What was it that made you grow? And the sage says two words. Oh, tell me, what are those two words? Wrong choices. <laughs> it's in making wrong choices that we learn to make right choices, isn't it? Growth, development, Achievement, success, all come from the same source.
adversity. It's hardship, it's adversity, it's, it's failing that actually helps us to grow, to develop, to become something different, to find success. I mean, you find someone who's successful, and I will show you someone who has faced adversity in some form or another. But that's not the way we like to think about things. We like to think that they don't come from adversity. We like to think that the world could be different, that what we really need to do is just find the easier way, if only we could find an easier way. Uh, this year, we'll watch the Olympics from London. I'm pretty stoked about the Olympics. I imagine many of you are as well. Excited about the Olympics coming to, to London and, and being able to watch the Olympic Games again since it's been four years. I was reading the other day about some people who were training for the Olympics. If you think that people are just now training for the 2012 Olympics, you are wrong. You're sad. You are very, very wrong. I read where this one runner has been training for seven years for this Olympics, seven years. In 2005, he began to train for the 2012 Olympics. In 2005, I mean, what were we doing? Ordering pizza, drinking beer? We were not thinking about the 2012 Olympics, were we? I mean, it was, it, nothing was in, in our, our mind. I mean, we were thinking about even the, the next Olympics. And here he is training seven years. You know, seven years ago... My oldest son was a freshman in high school. He is a junior in college. He calls me the other day, and he just now gets Woody Allen movies. I mean, seven years ago, he was making fun of me for watching them, and now he gets them. It takes a long time to develop. I thought that was funny. It takes a long time for people to, to grow and to develop. In our culture, um, we are fed a belief that there is an easier way. That there's always an easier way. That adversity is our foe. That hardship is a bad thing. If you weigh too much, take a pill and eat ice cream. It's okay. You'll be fine. If exams are too difficult and your grades are too low, fire the professor and get another one. Um, if you can't afford something, well, you should buy it anyway. Which is why we need Lent now more than ever. Lent teaches us to embrace the hard way. To embrace difficulty. To embrace adversity. And in the gospel lesson today, we have three different scenes. Did you notice how quickly we move to three different scenes? Six sentences in the original. Just six sentences. Mark moves us from, um, from Nazareth to the Jordan River, to the wilderness, to the Galilean countryside and villages. 118 words Mark uses to move us through all these different scenes. I can't order supper in six sentences. I don't know how he packs so much into so little. But we have these three scenes, right? The first one is the baptism of Jesus by John at the Jordan. The second, Jesus is in the wilderness. And the last one, Jesus is preaching in the villages. I want you to think about this. On one end, Jesus being baptized. He comes to the Jordan. He's baptized. The, 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 the clouds open. A voice comes from the heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I well please. The spirit descends. And in Mark's word, literally goes into Jesus. I know it says it rests upon him. But in Mark, literally, and the spirit goes into Jesus. And, and there's this affirmation. God delights in Jesus. Finds nothing not to delight in. On the other end, you have a, a different scene. You have Jesus preaching uh, in the Galilean countryside, going to the villages, proclaiming, repent, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have Jesus living out the vocation that God has given him. In one end, he's ordained or commissioned. In the other end, he is 
fulfilling that commission, doing what he's been called to do. But what about in the middle? In the middle between baptism and and fulfilling his vocation. See, that's the part, the middle part is the part that I want to focus on. It kind of reminds me of how important the middle is. Uh, When we go to my son's wrestle, as you know, and when we go to these wrestling tournaments, they're all day long. Like, you get there at 7 or 8 in the morning for weigh-ins, and you're there until 5, 6, 7 o'clock at night. I mean, it's an all-day thing. And so Abby always packs like a survival kit for me. And, uh, and, and somebody always gets in it, I, I tell you, all the time. And I remember one, one time we were at this, um, at this wrestling tournament, and I'm looking through my survival kit, and there's Oreos. Also called the best cookie ever sold in a grocery store, right? So I, there's these Oreos, and I, and I get them out, and, and, um, and I eat one, and, and then maybe another, and, um, and, and probably, probably a third. And, and it was on that third one that, that I took a bite, and it seemed not quite right. You know how that it happens. And, and I looked down at it and, and I realized that they were the two outside parts of the Oreo, but not the middle part, okay? <laughs> and I opened it up and there were little kid teeth marks that where they had, <laughs> someone had scraped that Oreo clean. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, what's an Oreo without the middle? But besides being really gross, if you don't have the middle part, you don't have the most important part. Jesus' ministry is about that middle part. It's just as important. It's as important as the, as the baptism. It's as important as fulfilling the mission. Now, I want you to look, if you, if you take your bulletin, and look with me at verse 12 in that passage. Okay? It's very, very brief. Not many details, and so we've got to look closely at them. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, into the wilderness. The Spirit drove him. Do you see that? The Spirit forced him. The word is to to throw out, to cast out, to kick out. This is what a bouncer does to you in a pub if you're misbehaving really badly, right? They throw you out. Jesus uses this word in uh, in Mark's Gospel in, in chapter 9, verse 47. He says, if your eye offends you, tear it out. It's better to go into heaven maimed than to have two eyes and be cast into hell. If your eye offends you, tear it out. Now, I know, I know this is taking you down the road to um, Mrs. Prout's third grade grammar class. But with that risk, I want you to think about the Spirit drove him. That is an active verb, isn't it? In Matthew and Luke's gospel, the Spirit led Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit, so, so, so the other. But not here. Here, the Spirit drives Jesus. The passive, kind of, you see the the victimization of it in in there. You know, you might say, well, I was hurt, or or she was shocked, or or he was surprised, or she was blessed. I mean, you know, when you talk about a passive verb, what what that means is that the, the object receives the action. Jesus was led. But that's not here, not in Mark. The Spirit drove him, cast him out, threw him out. Where? Into the wilderness. Jesus didn't say, you know, the wilderness sounds like a good place to go this time of the year. I hear it's lovely there. You know, I'll call the travel agent and see what we can work out and see. That's not what happened, is it? The Holy Spirit thrust Jesus, drove him out. It is a violent word. Drove him into the wilderness immediately. He's baptized and immediately he's driven and what did he find there? What did he find in the wilderness? 
Well, I'll tell you this, it wasn't the Ritz-Carlton, was it? I mean, it wasn't a posh motel. It, it, that, that's not what he found in the wilderness. And you know what he found, don't you? Look, look, look with me again at the text, uh, if I can find it. And, and, and he was in the wilderness, verse 13, for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. The first thing that Jesus finds in the wilderness is the Satan. The Satan, I say, because this is an individual. This is a personified evil. And I know it's not popular to believe in the devil. Okay, I know that that is so out of vogue in, in, in uh, our culture. But I want to tell you that I think the scripture is really clear on this point. The devil is real. There is a real personified evil in the world. A real spiritual evil whose singular goal is the destruction of anything good. Particularly the destruction of people. And their lives. And this Satan is at work trying to destroy Jesus. He finds the adversary of the righteous. Anyone who not only seeks to do good, but more importantly, to be good, will find that the Satan is present in the world in a very real um, way. But not just the Satan. Right? Look at verse 13 again with me. And he was with the wild animals. I can't remember the translation in the, in the bulletin. Is it wild beasts? Which is also a way to translate. He is with wild beasts. This is, um, this is like real live animals that were hunted. Uh, some that were vicious and would, would attack humans. I think what the scripture writer, I think what Mark is trying to say, is Jesus did not just face a spiritual attack. He faced a very physical one. Not all evil comes from the devil. You know, there are people out there who do quite well without his help at all. Uh, you know, there's a lot of evil in the world. And some of it comes from very uh, three-dimensional beings. But that's not all. There's still one other thing that he finds in the wilderness. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. The word ministering, serving, is the same word from which we get the word deacon in, the, uh, in our, our modern language. They were serving him. They were assisting him. They were ministering to him. Jesus goes into the wilderness. And he finds the devil. He finds wild beasts, but he also finds angels. And probably about this point is where you say, okay, so what? You know, I used to teach my uh, preaching students, I used to say to them, imagine as you're preaching a sermon that somebody might pop up in the middle or somewhere, or maybe at the end, hopefully, and say, so what? What does this mean to us? I mean, what has this got to do with me? Well, how about this? If our Lord was not exempt from facing adversity and hardship, if he was not exempt from the wilderness experience, what, must us, what makes us think that we would be? Why won't we experience the same sort of adversity? More than that, how about this idea? How about the idea that hardship and adversity are not necessarily evil in our lives, even though we may have to face evil ones, but that hardship and adversity might be part of God's plan for us. Indeed, part of the plan that makes us who God wants us to be. You see, there's almost no way to make saints apart from hardship and adversity. God will, at some point, allow us, by His mercy, to face a difficult experience. By His mercy, He'll let us face hardship and adversity. Out of God's goodness, He actually takes us to places we would never choose for ourselves. 
And in his mercy, he listens to us whine and complain. And I know you do it because I do it too. Oh, Lord, why have you abandoned me here? What's going on? You know, Henry Ford may have found a better way to make an automobile. But there is no better way to make a saint than to face hardship and adversity. But here's the good news. God will never leave us to face that alone. Amen.